I'm Emily Dilling, and this is the Perry Paysan Podcast. Today, we're leaving Paris behind and dedicating the entire episode to traveling around France, enjoying the country's regional cuisine and best restaurants. Our guide will be Alexander Lebrano, who's a Paris-based food writer and the European correspondent for Gourmet Magazine between 1999 and 2009. He's also written about food and travel for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bon Appetit, and many other publications. Alexander is the author of Hungry for Paris, the ultimate guide to the city's 102 best restaurants, and most recently, Hungry for France, Adventures for the Cook. I've been a fan of Alexander's writing for a very long time, and I'm grateful to him for many of the suggestions that have led me to great culinary delights in the city. Alexander's been living in Paris for 30 years and has extensively traveled around France. We met up to talk about some of his favorite restaurants in France. We started with some restaurants and regions that are close to Paris, an easy day trip or overnight trip away, and then we made our way from the west coast down to the south of France. We also talked about why you should leave Paris to eat regional cuisine elsewhere. Let's start with some day trips and overnight options close to Paris. I'm with Alexander Lebrano and we're in the beautiful park in front of the Trinity Church in the 9th arrondissement, meeting each other for the first time, which is great. I feel like this is an yeah, awesome fun. opportunity to meet. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I know you have a lot of things in, in store for us to talk about. I asked you to kind of come with some addresses uh, outside of Paris, even though I know that you know Paris really well. I think you've been here for about 30 years. 30 years. So I know you know the city really well, but I know you also have a long love story with France, not just Paris. So your most recent book is Hungry for France, and you talk about all of these restaurants that um, that you suggest and, and appreciate and have connections to around the country. So in this summer holiday season, people who are either living in France or visiting France might also have some ideas of exploring the country. And I was wondering if you could do maybe, like you said, like a little tour of France and some places that you would suggest people check out on their travels. With great pleasure, Emily. Um, before we leave Paris, though, one thing I would want to say is that even if you're coming just to Paris, there's some fantastic day trips that you can take just for mixing, uh, sightseeing, and really great food. One of the fun things that's finally happened, and you would have thought with the number of tourists who go to Versailles every year, that this that Versailles would have been a great food town forever, um, but it wasn't for a long time because most people day trip to Versailles. Uh, the restaurant, the restaurant offering Versailles was ordinary. Suddenly now Versailles is turning into a really seriously good food town. And there's a restaurant in Versailles that is worth making a reservation of before you head out to the to visit the chateau because the Versaillais love it. And that's called La Table du Onze or the Table of Eleven where there's a young chef named Baptiste Lavagne Moranzi who is doing just beautiful contemporary French bistro food. I love his cooking. His menu changes all the time because his kitchen is based on seasonal produce. He likes to work with local farmers from the Ile de France, which is, for anyone who might not know, the name of the region surrounding Paris. And there's still, even though the region became suburbanized after the Second World War, there is a very tiny, hopeful return to local agriculture outside of outside of the city of Paris itself. And I like to encourage young restaurateurs who are cooking with local produce. And so he'll go and pick up 
eggs from so-and-so and mushrooms from somebody, somebody else and, you know, nice summer stone fruit. Um, his food is just beautiful. And it's a fun restaurant. It's relaxed. It's affordable. Baptiste's dad is the proud father, is running the dining room. And he's a really nice man. So it's a family affair. And it's really a fun, fun place. So, again, that is the La Table du Onze, the table of 11. And that's in Versailles. So if you're heading out in that direction, uh, be sure to make a reservation there so you won't be disappointed. Another day trip idea uh, for people who are going to be based in Paris during their vacation um, is to get, go to Lille. Lille is a beautiful city. It's different from other French cities uh, because it was originally Flemish. That part of France on the northern border with Belgium became part of France in the late 1600s. Um, the original language there was Flemish. As somebody once explained to me that in Lille, they said, we're different from the rest of France because we build with brick and we drink beer. In the rest of France, they build with stone and they drink wine. Lille is a fantastic city for beer lovers. There's a, a craft beer movement in Lille and the surrounding region, uh, which is called Le Nord, the North. Um, and they cook a lot with beer, too. And there's some really fun little restaurants in the Le Vieux Lille, which is the old part of the city. You should look for Estaminet, which is a particular type of a bistro native to the north of France. They call them Estaminet. They're cozy, friendly, fun little places that have big beer menus. They cook a lot with local cheese. They cook with beer. They braise chicken and beer, dark beer. They make a dish called Water Zoe which is, again, chicken cooked in a sauce that's enriched with white beer um, with root vegetables. It sounds kind of heavy, but it's absolutely delicious, really sturdy and tasty. Um, and there's, there, it, Lille is also in the midst of a, a happy tourist boom. For me, I always say the more tourism, the better, because people who travel are the curious ones. Mm-hmm. So I always say, don't scorn tourists, be nice to them, because they're you're a tourist sometimes yourself. So, um, Lille is um, becoming more and more popular. And the, the other restaurant up there that I really like a lot is called the La Royale, where there's a young chef named Michael uh, Brouwer. Uh, and his food is light, fresh, local. Uh, this time of the year, he serves a lot of fish carpaccio. Um, Dunkirk in the north of France is the largest fishing port in France, so the fish is incredibly fresh. Chef Brower's food is very much based on seafood. So that's the deal, and it's an hour train ride from Paris. It also has one of the best museums, Beaux-Arts de Lille. Um, it's the third best, largest museum in France. There's so much to do up there for a day, including just sitting around on a cafe terrace in the sun and drinking a lot of beer. Um, from going a little bit further afield, one of the other places people head to easily from Paris, better as an overnight trip, is Normandy, um, which has special resonances, obviously, for North Americans because of the uh, World War II cemeteries which if you are reluctant to visit the cemeteries, I'd urge you to do because you can't look at on the miles and miles and miles of white crosses, stars of David, and Muslim crescents without being deeply, deeply moved. Um, Normandy is a fantastic place to eat, too, because of the seafood, the famous cheeses, including Camembert, Livaro. I mean, it's, it is the, the great cheese belt in northern France. And there's a fantastic restaurant there. Again, this is a place that you really should be thinking about making a reservation and so that you wouldn't be disappointed. That's called Saquana, and that's in Enfleur. 
Uh, Sakwana is the phonetic rendition. It's S-A point Q-U-A point N-E. Uh, Sakwana, and it's a Japanese word for fish. Um, and the, the chef worked in Japan for a long time. He lived in Hokkaido, the northernmost island in Japan, and he learned the Japanese way with seafood. His seafood is absolutely magnificent. Uh, again, and really affordable too. The good news this year for people coming to France, and for us too, because we live here, <laughs> is that the exchange rate is really <laughs> in our favor for a change. Um, so France is a terrifically good value destination for people who, who really like um, who really like good food. Um, the other place, by the way, further up the coast that I really like a lot is a, another um, another restaurant in a pretty little town called Montreuil-sur-Mer, and that is a young chef named Alexandre Gauthier. It's a really cool story. He took over the family auberge, which was a, called La Grenouillère, or the frog pond, which his father, his grandfather had founded. They served very traditional French cooking Alexandre is one of the most inventive young chefs in France, and I really admire him because he took over his fam the family's auberge, which had been founded by his grandfather. Um, his grandfather was a chef, his father was a chef, and he decided to dare to completely change his dad's cooking. And he keeps some of the classics on the menu, like lobster cooked in cream sauce, but basically what he's done is he looks at the surrounding countryside, including all kinds of wild berries and herbs and, and local vegetables. And he really wants to go back toward not sort of an old-fashioned 19th century idea of luxury food, but something that's really profoundly locavore and really exciting. And he sometimes describes his cooking as being violent. Violent in, in the way of like really good, imaginative, pushing out the walls, daring cooking, not like being obviously violent to your guests or anything like that. Um, I think that's really interesting to talk about um, like bringing in berries and, and not, not local produce because we know that their local produce can, you know, France is a rich agricultural country, but I think when we think of Normandy or sort of, yeah, and Brittany as well, we think of pastures and cows or maybe seafood, but we don't think of like lovely raspberries and blackberries or herbs. And then maybe that sort of violence sort of shocks us out of this idea of you know, camembert in uh, Calvados and things like that. And that's really nice because that could kind of awaken a new appreciation for a region that's sort of stuck in a, maybe in a cliche that we have of it in our minds. I think that's exactly true, Emily. I think that the, the regional kitchens have, were codified so that they have, the, most of the main, main regional kitchens in France have stereotyped dishes like quiche Lorraine and, and Alsace Lorraine or a lot of the cream-based dishes in Norman cooking. What's exciting now is that these ancient regional kitchens, which are really the bedrock of French cooking, all of them have contributed different foods and preparations to the, to the French palate and to French gastronomy. But the last time anybody checked in with them was in the middle of the 19th century when the railroads first made people more aware of each other's regional cooking. 
the impact of the railroads on how people eat in France was enormous because, for example, the railroads made it possible to bring cheeses from every corner of the country to the big cities. Most people previously, for example, in Paris, they mostly only ate the cheeses of the Ile de France, the Paris region, which would include things like Coulommiers, Brie, uh, Fontainebleau, cheeses that were made locally because there was no way to keep them fresh. So the 19th century was brilliant because France became the pantry for every major French city, and this made incredible produce available from one end of the country to the other. We'll continue our Tour de France with Alexandre Lobrano after this petite Paris Paysan podcast pause. I just wanted to let you know that I have a few upcoming book events for the rentrée, so if you're planning on being in Paris in September, I'd love to see you at the American Library in Paris on September 14th. The event will feature myself, as well as authors Kristen Bedard, who has recently released her book, Bonjour Kale, And illustrator, author, and food stylist Jesse Kenlis will be talking about our experiences writing books, living in Paris, and our thoughts on food culture in the city. On September 23rd at 10 a.m., I'll be at Shakespeare and Company at the cafe doing an event. We're still working out some of the details for that, but it will involve baked goods, book signings, and meeting with readers and meeting up with fellow foodies in the city. I'll be posting more information on those events as the details become clear, so keep an eye out on prairiepaysan.com or follow the Facebook page Prairiepaysan for more information. So let's get back to Alexander Lebrano as we pick up our conversation talking about the French sense of luxury foods and we make our way around France and some of his favorite restaurants in the country. What's different now, I think, I think that uh, luxury and novelty change as time goes by. I think that a certain idea of luxury in French food, which was characterized by truffles and foie gras and caviar and stuff like that, I'm not saying I don't like truffles and caviar and foie gras, but um, in a funny kind of a way now, for example, to go back to Alexander Gauthier at uh, La Grenouillère in Montreuil-sur-Mer, he made a dish out of fresh hop shoots. Uh, which was just stunningly beautiful and fragrant. And the hop shoots, which I had once eaten before in the Czech Republic, were kind of like fiddlehead ferns, but a little bit more bitter and resinous. And he sautéed them in brown butter. And for me, that was incredibly exciting because A, I'd never had it before, um, and B, it was a moment. I mean, it was a fleeting moment of the year in that very specific corner of France that he figured out a way of bringing to the table Um, and he served it. It was a, um, a side dish with a fillet of sole. And the succulent sweetness, quiet succulent sweetness of the sole teemed beautifully with the slight bitterness of the hop shoots. It was just a beautiful, beautiful meal. I really like simple food. And I think that as someone who's been lucky enough to have been eating his way from one end of France to the other for such a long time, I have learned that the real essence of French gastronomy is simplicity. Many people still think that French food is, what I say, is too fancy, too expensive, and too rich. It's the three twos. But it's really not. I think that, as you and I know, because we shop markets in Paris and in other towns and cities in France, Most French people, when they go out, don't have shopping lists. They know vaguely what they need to buy, but when you go to the market, you 
let the menu be guided by what looks delicious, and then you figure out what you're going to cook when you get home. I mean, France is in the middle of a pretty amazing gastronomic renaissance right now. From one end of the country to the other, there are really brilliant young men and women cooking their hearts out in little tiny towns. Gastronomy has been decentralized, which is really great. It's possible to find great food anywhere that you might be headed this summer during your travels in France. I had been talking about Normandy, and you'd mentioned Brittany, which is my next stop in this little tour de France. Um, I have, as a New Englander, I have a real love of Brittany, which is a, Celt- a region with Celtic roots, magnificent beaches, and I think the world's best seafood. If you like fish and shellfish, there's no better place on the planet to head to in Brittany. And uh, there's a town called Cancal, which is um, on the Bay of Saint-Michel. Cancal, uh, when you mention it to French people, is most famous for its oysters. Cancal is also one of the great gastronomic Oz's of France. Um, Olivier Rollanger, who is the grandfather of modern Breton, Breton cooking, has a fantastic restaurant there called Les Coquillages, which means the shellfish, um, in a beautiful villa on a cliff overlooking the bay of Mont-Saint-Michel. It is one of the most romantic and beautiful restaurants I've ever been in my entire life. When the weather's good, they serve under huge uh, beech trees outside, and you stare out over the sort of pellucid aquamarine waters of the bay, eating chimney-roasted lobster, and life is pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, but again, the thing that's so fantastic is there is this this um, yin and yang between the between, between tradition and innovation in the French kitchen. Um, in Cancale, the other restaurant that I send people to is called La Table du de Braise Café. The Braise Café, some people who n- know and love crepes might have heard of Braise Café because there's a Braise Café in Paris. It's in the Marais district of Paris, and it serves fantastic crepes and galettes. Um, and it was founded by a man from Cancale. Um, in his hometown, he has a creperie, but the Table du, du Braise Café is run by a brilliant Japanese chef um, who named Fumio Kudaka. And uh, Mr. Kudaka proves that there are, who, who would have thunk it? amazing similarities between Breton cooking and Japanese cooking because it's the art of, uh, of timing. Uh, when you have fish and shellfish that fresh, uh, you want to cook it to within a millisecond of perfection and you garnish it in the simplest of ways. You would never do anything to mask the basic natural flavors of this magnificent seafood. Um, and his that meal is one of the most astonishing meals that I've eaten in the last five years. It is just stunningly good fish. I have a friend who's from Brittany, and she has friends who are seaweed farmers, and all of these varieties that I had never seen, and that, that makes me think you know, of a link towards Japanese cuisine, but also something that maybe we don't think about um, as a really great sort of vegetarian option, but also a whole new world of, of flavor that we can sea find. Vegetables. Mm. Sea vegetables. I think that I, I now call seaweed sea vegetables because I love seaweed. Um, I think that most of us, any of us who grew up on shore, uh, North American shorelines, think of 
the stuff that we saw long dried out on the beach. But in most of the world, sea vegetables, whether it's Brittany, Japan, um, and many other places, people learned centuries ago that it's a fantastic foodstuff. I mean, they are incredibly rich with minerals and, and trace elements and all sorts of things that people living busy, stressful lives in urban settings are very much in need in. And the cooking at La Table du Brez in Cancal uses a lot of seaweed as well. He makes a dashi, which is a, um, a broth with, with kumbuka seaweed, and it has a depth of umami flavor and taste, which is stunningly, stunningly beautiful. You know, he uses this as a backdrop for simply steamed oysters or cockles or winkles or shellfish. And it is just, it's sensual. Uh, it's just dazzlingly good. It's dazzlingly good. <laughs> to, to travel down the coast from Brittany, a place I never want to leave. Another place I would point out this summer was Biarritz in the Basque country, uh, which was a fisherman's village until it be, was chosen as the location of the summer villa of Napoleon Toile. Uh, who turned it, whose wife, Eugenie, turned it into a, a very grand society, uh, sea-bathing resort, as they called them in the 19th century. Th- their villa today is a very famous, one of the most famous hotels in France. It's called the um, Hotel du Palais. And if you want to spend a night in a real palace, it's not cheap, but it is one of those amazing things to wake up in the morning or to go to bed at night and leave the windows wide open and listen to the waves crashing on the rocks all night long. And depending on what the weather's like, I like it because you can even feel the mist of the waves settling on your face in the dark when you're sleeping, which is pretty fantastic. Um, but where to eat in Via Ritz? Um, there, too, there's another fantastic new restaurant which just opened. And it's called L'Entre-Deux, which in English would, with a clumsy translation would mean between the two of us. And it's two young chefs, Rémi Escal and Jean Van de Velde. Um, and they are doing very seasonal contemporary French bistro cooking that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I was there a couple of weeks ago, ate one of the best things I've eaten all year, which was a, um, a dish of poached lobster with melon, ice, and six different types of tomatoes, which came from the Lot and Garonne. Said so they were field ripened tomatoes. Uh, there were zebra tomatoes, there were yellow tomatoes, the corn tomatoes, there are all different kinds of tomatoes. It was a stunningly beautiful dish. Um, their excitement about the products that they use is fantastic too, because I think when they heard my accented French, one of them came rushing into the dining room and wanted to make sure that I knew how special these tomatoes actually were. And I said, yeah, I know, I've been there, I get get it. it. (laughs) It's okay, they're really, really good. And thank you for caring. (laughs) The Basque country also has one of the most interesting regional kitchens. It's very little known outside of France. Um, but Basque cooking, for example, they have their own type of pepper, which is called piment d'Esplet. And there's a village called Esplet in the back country, which is incredibly beautiful. They're sort of long, horn-shaped peppers that are dried in garlands. Um, and they're just slightly, they're sweet, but they're also, they taste a little bit like sumac. They're really a fantastic thing to pick up a bottle of it dried and throw in your suitcases. I don't really believe in souvenirs because the best ones are in my mind. But if I'm going to take anything home, it's usually edible. And there's nothing more fun than to be back home and open a jar and you taste something and suddenly you're standing back on the beach in Europe. You're back in the palace. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> With the mist, <laughs> the mist landing on my face in the middle of the night.
The south of France obviously is one of the, uh, the great gastronomic regions of the country as well. Um, and that's not just the Riviera, but the whole Mediterranean literal um, and Corsica. Corsica, in terms of another regional kitchen, is one of my favorite places to, to eat. If you're looking to do a really brilliant food-oriented road trip this summer, check out the Corsican Tourist Office website. They have a whole bunch of different routes that you can travel, um, which will take you to beekeepers, olive oil makers, cheese makers, people who make charcuterie. You know, and it's really fun because these people are incredibly proud of what they do. Um, they quickly offer you a taste of everything that they have, and it's getting a lesson in the island itself. Corsica also makes exquisite wine. Corsican food is very little known outside of France, so I highly recommend Corsica. It's one of the most environmentally best-preserved and intact Mediterranean environments. It's stunningly beautiful, and the Corsicans are, like many island people, wary at first, but they like Americans. A, a lot of Corsicans emigrated to Puerto Rico in the 19th century. So uh, many Puerto Ricans have Corsican ancestry. Um, so that for many Corsicans, they say that they have an American connection. And in many of the Corsican villages, it's interesting because you'll see the traditional sort of simple stone houses, and then you'll see a very grand villa, and they call these villas Les Américains, or the American ones, because people coming back to Corsica from uh, Venezuela or Puerto Rico or California who had made money in the New World came home and built these houses. But Corsica is a fantastic place for people who love good food, good wine, and fantastic scenery and nice beaches. <laughs> um, there are a couple other places on the, on the mainland in the south of France. Three new places I specifically want to point out to people. The town of Arles is, um, in the south of France is one of the most exciting small cities in France right now. They've just renovated the Van Gogh Museum. That is alone worth a visit. Um, there's a Swiss woman named Maya Hoffman who is turning Arles into one of the artiest little cities in Europe. There are all kinds of galleries, film festivals, art galleries, photography galleries. Um, to say nothing of all the Roman ruins, Arles is an enchanting place. And the restaurant not to miss there is Laura Vidal and Harry Cummins. Laura Vidal is a delightful young sommelier from Montreal, who used to work in Paris. And her partner, Harry Cummins, is an Englishman. They both worked in Paris for a long time. Um, now they settled in Arles, and they've opened a restaurant called Le Chardon, which means the thistle. And they're doing, uh, Laura is serving her spectacular collection of wine. She's one of the best palates in terms of wine of any person I've ever met. And Laura's got a, it's a great story, and this is, you know, it's a lesson to everyone. She had a business degree. I think she was, was all set to be doing a, a banking career or something until one day she sort of went out for a nice meal with somebody and had an amazing bottle of wine. And on the way home, as she explains it, she said, it suddenly occurred to me that, no, I don't want to do a banking career. I want, I want wine. <laughs> um, and Harry's a brilliant cook. Um, his, his food is so gentle. Um, it's so original. It's humble. He knows how to do everything. He's a brilliant baker. 
he makes good sauces. They do everything. I mean, they bake their own bread. They do everything in this restaurant. So don't miss that one. It's called Le Chardon. And it's tiny and a huge amount of fun. And that's in Earl. Um, and the other two places that I'd mention, not to miss this summer in the south of France, Marseille is a city that I love passionately. Um, it scares some people off a little bit because it's a big, ethnically diverse port town that can seem a little gruff when you first get there. But maybe because I lived in New York City for a long time, um, it certainly didn't put me off. <laughs> um, I love the diversity of it. And the food scene is fantastic because there's a lot of cross-fertilization going on between all the different ethnic groups. Marseille has the largest community of people from the Comora Islands, which are islands off the coast of East Africa in the world, for example. It also has the uh, it's one of the world's ten largest Jewish cities. It has it's the world's third largest Armenian city. It has an amazing diversity of people. And as a young uh, chef in Marseille said to me the last time I was down there, he said, "What's changing with us now is that we've all started to eat each other's food um, because you know we grew up. The world has changed." Um, our parents might have stayed within the tribe of their own ethnicity, but we don't. Uh, you know, so as he explained to me, he said, I grew up eating Vietnamese food, all different North African foods, um, Armenian food, Greek food, Spanish food, Italian food, everything. And he said, what it does is it leaves you with this amazing palate. And the markets of Marseille are a reflection of the mosaic, the human mosaic of the city which means that the diversity and richness of the city comes to the table in the food that you eat. And the restaurant that's really fascinating down there is called AM, which is named after the chef, whose name is Alexandre Mazia. He's a native of Marseille, and he does dishes like, this was when I was down there in May. He is absolutely obsessed with fresh produce. Um, and he served a dish of fresh baby peas with organic peanut oil, green strawberries, and peppered tomato water, which is was one of the most amazing things just I've ever visually, eaten. That must have been so it was beautiful stunningly beautiful. To, no, it's just see. it looked like jewelry. Oh. I mean, it was so it wow. was so pretty, but just the the delicacy of those flavors. And again, what's really nice about this too, and this is something else that's interesting that's happening in France right now. France was a little slow on the uptake in terms of vegetarian and vegan cooking. But many of the best young chefs in, in France right now really do madly, madly love vegetables and fruit. And more and more on the menus in France, you're seeing dishes like that dish with the peas and the strawberries and the tomato water. Before we get one last restaurant recommendation from Alexandre Lobrano and talk more about why you should leave Paris and eat around France, I just want to let you know that I've got another Perry Paysan podcast episode in the works that I'm really excited about. The next one will feature another installation of my segment, Buying Things with Lise, in which we talk to Chef Lise Kavan about how to buy and prepare seasonal and locally sourced ingredients from the market. In the next edition of Buying Things with Lise, Lise will be answering listener questions. If you have a question about buying, preparing, or conserving fresh food, send it in to emily at peripaysan, and I will pass it on to Lise and we'll try to get it answered in the upcoming segment. So let's get back to Alexander Lebrano with some thoughts on why you should leave Paris, hop on a train, and eat regional specialties in France. It's 
the last place that I'd like to point out is a really beautiful new hotel called the Domaine de Fonteville. And the restaurant there is called, beautiful name, Le Champ des Lunes, or the Field of the Moon. And it's in a town called Loris. Loris is right outside of Lormarin, which is famous as the hometown of Albert Camus, who wrote The Stranger. And um, Lormarin is a beautiful, beautiful little town. It's one of the prettiest towns in Provence. Um, Loris, for people who really like vegetables, is also worth mentioning because Loris is where a lot of the best asparagus in France is grown. It won't, it's not asparagus season at this time of the year, but the little farms along the Cavaillon of the Durance River are producing at this time of the year, which is in midsummer, beautiful melons, all kinds of stone fruit, beans, eggplant, delicious tomatoes. And I know all of this good stuff is going to end up on the table at Le Champ de Lune, where the chef is Jérôme Faure. Um, and Jérôme is, again, another Prados-obsessed young chef who's originally from the Jura region, which is on the Swiss border. The only way that I knew that he was not from Provence, uh, his mastery of Provençal Prados was spectacular. There was a dish where there were probably 15 different vegetables each one had been cooked a different amount of time and five or six different herbs. And then there was a backdrop taste, and I kept thinking to myself, it was vaguely bitter, pleasant, her herbaceous. And I thought, what could this be? I kept thinking it tastes like chartreuse, which is a liqueur made by monks in the, the Jura uh, the Jura region. And when Jérôme came out and I complimented him on the, the vegetable dish, I said, you know, what was I said, that wouldn't be chart. And he said, yep. Chartreuse, which is, was really fun because he said the reason I decided to use it was because it's herbal. And, and it is also a very powerful liqueur. And he said it's herbal, so I thought it would be nice to create sort of a, a tap, a backdrop for this tapestry of vegetables and herbs, which was, I thought, a beautiful way of thinking of the, all the vegetables. Um, and he said, and also because Chartreuse is so powerful, I knew everybody would leave the table with a smile on their face. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think describing these beautiful regional ingredients that are even used interchangeably between regions is a great segue into um, another question I wanted to ask you, which is, um, besides romantic restaurants and sensual sea vegetables and sleeping with sea mist, why should someone leave Paris to, to taste regional cuisine? You know, you, you could find moule frites in Paris, or you could find um, kind of a typical Beaujolais-style bistro and, and probably have a lovely night, but um, why should someone get, get on the train and really go to that place? Paris has a great offer of regional restaurants, but they they're, they're slightly in decline because a lot, as a lot of people from different regions retired and moved back to their regions, nobody stepped into their shoes. Uh, for example, Alsatian food, which I love, is not well represented in Paris anymore. You know, most most uh, most North Americans at least no quiche Lorraine, which is not Alsatian. Particularly, the Alsatian equivalent of quiche Lorraine is a tarte à l'oignon, or an onion tart. But the really, really great stuff is not found in Paris anymore. Um, going to the source a lot of the time, in terms of tasting things that are made with specific ingredients that are not even sent out of the region, like really good chucrut. Americans call it sauerkraut. We think of it as something that comes in cans and is served with hot dogs. Real chucrut is fermented cabbage. Uh, the French version is much gentler than American sauerkraut. The Alsatian cabbage is more gently brined. 
Um, and it's, it's a real ferment. The, it's a fermented product, and because it's fermented, it has all kinds of enzymes and a, and a richness both of taste and health benefits. Incredibly rich in vitamin C, for example. I mean, it's what basically kept people alive during the winter in the heart of Europe for centuries. Um, to really taste charcuterie at the source is a pretty amazing thing. Where you know, you if you go like in a little town, you go into some of the Vinstube, which are the Alsatian equivalents of bistros. The people will often take you in the back and lift the big heavy lid off of the charcuterie barrel, and you'll see it's bubbling away and fermenting and everything else. Um, I think that's really exciting. I love to see the food at the source, and in the same way, so that you know, Alsace is a place that no longer is well represented in Paris. Surprisingly enough, even cassoulet from the southwest of France, which used to be common in bistros in Paris, is harder and harder to find, mostly because it's very time-consuming to make. The 35-hour uh, work week in Paris has had a huge impact on what we eat in Paris because dishes that require somebody to be in the kitchen all day long have just become too expensive. There are three different major types of cassoulet. There's Toulouse-style cassoulet, which is made with Toulouse sausage. There's Castanaudry, which is often made with game. And then there's Carcassonne. None of these different varieties make their way to Paris. Uh, so the real pleasure, it's, it's really, you know, as the Michelin guide coined the phrase, it's worth the trip to hunt these regional things down at the source. And also even the beans that Cassoulet is made from are grown in the south of, uh, south of France. They're grown on small farms. They're expensive. People think that any old white bean will do. It's not right. <laughs> it's very precious and it speaks to this sort of, you know, very tradition-bound culture, but also a food culture that is, this is the thing that's from here and this is how we do it because it's the best thing to do with this ingredient. And like, that really, that really helps the idea of food culture sink in. To have a real personal experience with that, I think you need to go to a place where that pride is really evident. I completely agree with you and I think that, that the degree of gastronomic literacy in France, um, I, I, I always remember the first time I ever came to France when I was a teenager and for some reason we ended up in a schoolroom, and there was a map of France on the wall and instead of historical images like you might see on a map of America in the schoolrooms that I grew up in. They were images of the food that was specific to each region. They actually teach this in the school so that when you're talking to French people, if you say that you're going to uh, Port Bou, which is a tiny, tiny town on the border between Spain, uh, Catalonia, and the, the Roussillon, uh, everybody will nod and say, oh, you have to try the cherries. Or I'm going to Colio. Oh, well, the best anchovies in the world are caught in the waters off of Colio and packed in, in Colio. This, this literacy and this uh, passion for the produce of the soil, the, whether it's vegetables or uh, the cheeses or the wines, um, it's really pretty astonishing. And I, I think that France has given the world a huge gift. Sometimes people say to me, is French food as good as it used to be? Or maybe it's not as good as it used to be and what have you. And I say, I think the distance between France and the rest of the world has been reduced because, gastronomically because France is such a fantastic and generous teacher. It really put these lessons out into the world, which woke up benighted English-speaking countries like the U.S., Canada, Britain, Australia, whatever, and, and made us care about what we eat. So no, I mean, the, the, the big battles, the big battles uh, in the dinner plate in France are the same as those everywhere. I mean, the, 
the battle between industrial agriculture and small-scale agriculture, sustainable agriculture, sustainable fisheries, all of these things, these are big battles here. But living and having lived in France for such a long time and shopping every Saturday morning, either in the, um, the Marché, the organic market in Les Batignolles, or at the, if I'm feeling flush, or just for window shopping at the Avenue du President Wilson, an astonishing market. If you're, gonna, if you're going to really want to make your eyeballs pop out of your head, I take people to the, the market in the Avenue du President Wilson, which is on Wednesdays and Saturdays, because it is an amazing, quick, fragrant, mouth-watering lesson in what's in season at any time of the year. There's even a stand there called the Bar des Patates, um, where they sell 30 different types of potatoes at any given time, plus any type of wild mushroom that's available at that particular moment. It's pretty spectacular. And I'll put all the links for all of the things you said, but also encourage people to buy the book, Hungry for France, where you have this and so much more because we didn't even get to the Loire Valley and all of the other regions just for time. And I would love to meet up with you another time and, oh, and talk more. Yeah, That'd be great. Um, and maybe on the occasion of your next book, can you tell us a little bit about sure. that? When I was doing the promotional trips in the U.S. for the two books that I've already written, Hungry for Paris, which is a restaurant guide book, um, a memoir of or portrait of life in Paris, and then Hungry for France. My life, I've lived in France for such a long time that I take it, f no, I don't really take it for granted. I never take it for granted, but it's my reality. Um, what I'm made aware of is that I made a lot of very different choices in life. I chose to move to a foreign country. I chose to make food the vector of my verbal expression. And um, people are very curious about this. So how did this happen? I mean, I worked as a book editor in New York City before I did what Laura Vidal did when she threw over her banking career. And I decided, no, I do not want to come back to the 25th floor of the skyscraper ever again. I am leaving. Um, and I did that thing, which you're not supposed to do, which is to throw yourself into the unknown and take a chance, which is why I'm lucky enough to be sitting on this park bench with you today. <laughs> and like, um, so my next book will be um, a very personal nonfiction account. I wouldn't say a memoir because I hope that I'll have many more years to live, but a telling the tale of how I became a food writer and how I fell in love with France and how France really made me the person I am today and um, you know, what I've learned as a result of my own little odyssey, which was how does somebody from a suburb in Connecticut end up being a food writer living in Paris? I mean, Every once in a while, if I, if, even as hearing myself say that, I have to pinch myself because mm -hmm. how did that happen? Mm -hmm. I'd like to know myself sometimes, <laughs> and I hope you will too when, when, I, when my book comes out. We'll definitely be reading that book. Um, and following up, and you have a beautiful new website. I know you've put a lot of work into get do, redoing the website, so anyone who's been a fan of yours for a long time should go back and, and check and see all the new stuff that you're posting. Um, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to meet you. Oh, it was lo lovely to meet you too. And um, I'm also, I should say that uh, this is not our subject here today, but I'm looking forward to reading Emily's book. Emily also has written an absolutely delightful book, um, but I'll let her tell you more about that. I think you probably already know. <laughs> I'll put links to that on the show notes, too. <laughs> Thanks so much to Alexandra Lebrano for all of the great suggestions on how to best eat our way through France. I'll include links to the restaurants that Alexandra mentioned in the show notes as well as links to his books, Hungry for Paris and Hungry for France. 
If you're interested in learning more about the markets that Alexander mentioned, check out some of the back episodes of the Perry Paysan podcast. In the pilot episode, I visited Marche Batignon with Omid and Alana from Emperor Norton. And in episode three, I took a tour of Marche President Wilson with Kristen Bedard, author of Bonjour Kale. Both those markets are also included in my book, My Paris Market Cookbook. So if you haven't checked that out yet, there's links on the website to find out more information about the book and how to order it. And finally, thanks so much to Ben Nero, as always, for the theme music, but especially this time for the fancy new mic that I used to record this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Tune in next time to the Perry Paysan Podcast.